Welcome back to Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have vanished while travelling abroad. This is part two of the Ryan Chambers episode. If you haven't listened to part one, I suggest going back and listening to that first. It's a must as I covered the main details of Ryan's disappearance and a lot about the city of Rishikesh that he disappeared from, its history and kind of what makes it such a unique destination. So definitely go back and do that. Now, for many years after his disappearance in 2005, Ryan's parents really did believe that Ryan was still alive and was simply unable to reach out to anyone as he was being controlled by someone or something. They used social media to try to track down leads after the Australian and Indian police were both unable to find any trace of Ryan. Interpol were of little help and the Department of Foreign Affairs only helped in the beginning. They've used private investigators in India, major Indian brands and companies to draw attention to the case. They've even reached out to famous people across India to try to get coverage. And as I said in the first episode, a documentary was made by a Croatian filmmaker about Ryan's disappearance called Missing in the Land of Gods. In their desperation, they've even turned to psychics. Now, the part about being them believing that Ryan was unable to reach out to them because they were being, that he was being controlled by someone or something made me, which I have thought of it on and off throughout looking into this case, it made me think of a movie called Holy Smoke. I actually loved it back in the day when I think I was in my teens. It's a movie that came out in 1999 and was directed by the New Zealand director, Jane Campion. It stars Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel. And It's got horrendous reviews on Rotten Tomatoes um, on IMDb. So maybe that says a bit about my taste in movies. But it's essentially about an Australian who Kate Winslet actually plays who ends up going to India and she gets kind of sucked in by this holy man in an ashram. And her parents are so worried about her that they pay this cult exeter, as he's called, who Harvey Keitel plays to basically bring her back to Australia and unbrainwash her. And a lot of it is kind of the starts filmed in India from memory and most of it is in the Australian outback. Um, I think it's probably most well known because Kate Winslet pisses herself on screen. Um, But I just thought, you know, that was interesting. It is a concept and these people actually do exist. Um, The one that Harvey Keitel plays in the movie Um, Now, according to a news.com.au article on India syndrome, which I touched on quite a bit in the first episode, an Australian journalist did a really good job. He actually travelled in 2018 to India to investigate Ryan's disappearance. By this point, it's 13 years on. He spoke with the main policeman in charge of Ryan's case there. This policeman firmly believes that Ryan drowned in the Ganges River. He doesn't believe that Ryan is under the hold of a Baba or a Sadhu or a holy man, basically because Ryan didn't leave with any money with on him or any belongings on him. He wouldn't have anything to offer um, kind of a money-hungry fake holy man, so he wouldn't really be of use to them. They generally tend to target tourists who can provide a steady cash flow. So ones that are keeping in touch with home and maybe having money sent to them who or who are already traveling with 
a significant amount of travel funds. He did say that the Ganges were unusually high the month that Ryan disappeared and he wouldn't necessarily have been caught up in a catchment or a floodgate um, that are found along the river. Other months, these are generally um, opened up um, during floods. So he wouldn't, as he said, kind of necessarily have been caught in one if it was closed. However, when a body does wash up in the Ganges, they aren't generally DNA tested or identified. And apparently there are a lot of bodies in it. They also do, you know, ritual burials in the Ganges um, where they set fire to them and float them out onto the Ganges. It's part of, I believe, the Hindu faith. So, you know, this policeman believes that Ryan was actually a body that was discovered and mistaken for a local and was essentially just buried in a pauper's grave or cremated um, as a John Doe. However, Ryan's parents, I don't, they don't believe this theory even today. This, the same article states, quote, we will never find him now, Die Chambers says. We're not actively looking anymore, but if he's alive today and is discovered, I believe our true journey will just be beginning. We will have to rediscover him for the person he now is. Unquote. This made me really sad because it does sound like his parents have given up hope that he'll ever be found. And, you know, I, it must be unbearable. However, this brings me back to Ryan's last note that he left, which I quoted on the first episode the part that brings me back to is that he said distinctly, quote, if I am gone, I am not dead. And that's a very, you know, affirmative statement to make. One India Mike post that I found, which is an Indian kind of travel forum, I found this one from a man who actually said that he'd left his life behind and disappeared in India willingly. He said, quote, India has a way of making us look at ourselves and our lives in far more detail than we have ever done before. Some people react badly to this, some don't. But Ryan has been missing for 15 years and this makes me think that it would honestly be so difficult to exist for that long with absolutely nothing on your back, living off charity essentially. No identification, no nothing and... It also makes me think that eventually Ryan would have had to have had some interaction with police or authorities or someone who he would have divulged his identity to. The next theory is that Ryan was sucked in by a fake holy man. Now, I'm with the policeman on this. I honestly, after going over this for over a month and really thinking about it, deeply and it was kind of on my mind this entire week in the back of my mind constantly. Ryan left without his belongings from the ashram at five o'clock in the morning. He only had a pair of shorts on. He didn't have his phone, his wallet, his passport, anything. How would he serve any kind of purpose with no funds, no nothing, when fake holy men prey on tourists essentially for money? He was also cited, if you believe that that was him, a week later um, at a church or a temple where someone gave him food and water and then he went on his way. He was on his own during this time. So clearly, you know, he wasn't at that point, if that was him, under the influence of anyone. 
Another theory is that Ryan was experiencing some sort of short-term psychotic episode um, brought on by drugs or stress. Um, smoking hash and other drugs in India is quite common and we don't have a play-by-play of what he was doing at the ashram or in his spare time. We only have those quotes about him visiting the holy man with the Spanish traveller that he met. We don't know what he was doing 24 hours of every day. Drugs would explain his restlessness, his sudden anxiety to go home after two months and kind of feeling out of sorts as John described him. I also came across a post recently from Ryan's brother Aaron on the Find Ryan Chambers Facebook page. Aaron essentially had put forward another theory that Ryan had had some sort of rare side effect to the drug Larium. Larium is a really common drug that you're prescribed when you're traveling to countries where um, malaria is quite common. I myself have taken it. Um, The most common kind of side effects are uh, light sensitivity. So you're meant to kind of stay out of direct sunlight while you're using it. Um, but most people don't really have any side effects and I didn't. Um, however, some people ha- do experience rare side effects, which kind of mimic the symptoms of what we went through India syndrome on the first episode, which is travellers kind of acting out of sorts and experiencing these short-term psychotic episodes, which are well documented in backpackers and travellers across India. Um, essentially, they had found Ryan's medication in his belongings um, that he'd left behind in India, and it was Larium, and a lot of studies have been done on Larium and found that some people do have these strange side effects and... Um, kind of paranoia. Now, the next theory, which I'll go into quite extensively as it really does interest me, is the concept of a fugue state. Now, a fugue state was something that I actually didn't think was a proven phenomenon. Um, I had a friend who was doing a PhD in psychology who said a fugue state's his belief was that it it wasn't a real thing. However, diving into a lot of research about fugue states really made me think the opposite to what I always thought. It seems that it's a real condition with evidence to back it up, albeit it is an extremely rare condition to suffer from. So I'll go into a bit about what a fugue state is. From Psychology Today, which I'm quoting from quite a lot for this um, particular section of episode two, quote, dissociative fugue, formerly called psychogenic fugue, is a psychological state in which a person loses awareness of their identity or other important autobiographical information and also engages in some form of unexpected travel. People who experience this dissociative fugue may find themselves in a place such as the beach or at work with no memory of traveling there. Similarly, they may find themselves somewhere in their home, such as a closet or in a corner of a room with no memory of getting there. The DSM-5 refers to dissociative fugue as a state of bewildered wandering. 
In addition to confusion about identity, people experiencing a dissociative fugue state may also develop a new identity. Dissociative fugue is a rare condition with prevalence estimates as low as 0.2% in the general population. Dissociative fugue states are more common in adults than in, chi- than in children, unquote. Now, Psychology Today also went into the causes of the fugue state, which I will quote now. Quote, the onset of a dissociative fugue state is usually sudden and follows a traumatic or highly stressful event. Dissociative fugues are associated with difficult events such as natural disasters and war, as well as severe marital or financial distress, alcohol abuse, depression, and a history of child abuse. There may also be a genetic link because individuals with dissociative disorders sometimes have family members with the same condition, unquote. Now, it does seem from the research that I've done on dissociative fugue states that they usually end really suddenly, almost like you're kind of snapping back into reality, the person suddenly becomes aware of where they are and what they're doing. Um, And basically the way that experts say that you have to, you can remove a person from a fugue state is to remove them from the stressful situation or threat that's causing it. Does any of this sound at all familiar to you? What I've been going through about Ryan's behavior before he disappeared or anything like that, because it, it really just struck me how, how much it fits in line with everything leading up to Ryan's disappearance, how he was acting and his just sudden disappearance. It does make me think that if you are traveling and you enter a fugue state, you aren't really able to escape that threat. If you just wander away from your life, you will never totally be comfortable enough in this foreign country to snap out of a fugue state. So can a fugue state last indefinitely? Experts who have researched fugue states state that they really generally last for anywhere from a few hours to a few months maximum. I couldn't find any case study that said that they would last years and years and Ryan's been missing now for 15 years. A mental health disorder manual I found states that the longer a feud state goes on, the more likelihood that those affected by it will just form a new identity far away from the place they started. And that makes me wonder, then what? Then what happens? Do they continue on in the fugue state with this new identity, just carving out a new life and forgetting about their former one, or do they remember kind of remnants of it? Now, I'm not saying that something that's so rare would necessarily be what happened to Ryan, but, and I'm not a huge conspiracy theorist these days, but I I can't help but be amazed by how it fits, how much it fits in with his, his disappearance. Now, I did read through a case study of a 28-year-old medical student in Nigeria that was experiencing dissociative fugue symptoms and he actually went missing for 10 days at one point. He was experiencing a pretty intense hallucination right before he went missing and he felt, quote, unease and quite uncomfortable, unquote. And that's pretty much exactly how John described Ryan feeling right before he vanished and the word uncomfortable 
um, was used. Now, I just want to go into and quote a bit of this fugue state that this Nigerian medical student experienced um, because I thought it was pretty fascinating no matter where you fall on it. Quote, he saw the whole room turning with everything inside becoming unstable and unreal. After this, he had overwhelming fears and did not know when he left the room. Two days later, he discovered he was with his younger sibling in southwestern Nigeria. The patient had no knowledge of how he made the journey that takes approximately eight hours by road. He equally could not remember where he slept the night as he left his room, how he raised money for the journey or the buses and routes he took. The patient denied all memory of events for the two days from when he left his room at the university to the time he suddenly realised he was at his brother's house, 634 kilometres away. The brother, however, reported that the patient appeared unkempt, looked exhausted, but was fully conscious and alert on arrival at his house without any assistance. Prior to this episode, the patient had been under severe economic and academic pressures. The younger brother who paid the patient's bills had threatened to withdraw his sponsorship because of the patient's prolonged stay in school beyond the stipulated duration of training, occasioned by his repeats of examinations and classes. The patient had been worried that he might fail in his final qualifying examinations, scheduled to be held in three months. He subsequently became involved in several religious activities to obviate his perception of impending doom. The patient admitted to having low mood, loss of interest in usually pleasurable activities and poor appetite. He had lost weight and most often preferred being alone. He had been feeling weak, especially in the morning hours, but had managed to grudgingly carry on with the day's activities. He had suicidal ideation, but never attempted suicide. The patient slept poorly at night. His sleep had been marked by early morning wakefulness and waking up not feeling refreshed, unquote. Now, obviously, this shows that dissociative fugue states, um, I mean, if you believe they're a thing, a lot of people believe that they're just people escaping their responsibilities, um, kind of making up the fact that they disappeared. My friend who didn't believe in them used to quote, I believe um, Walter at one point says when he goes missing for a while in Breaking Bad, he says that he was experiencing a fugue state. Um, no matter where you fall on it, it seems that there are, I believe the word is comorbid, comorbid, <laughs> comorbidities um, that occur, such as depression um, and, you know, low mood and anxiety that happen right before a dissociative fugue. However, what makes one person subject to a dissociative fugue state who's under immense pressure and other people not um, reading that it's, uh, I mean, it's not a competition, but about um, maybe eight years ago, I was under some of the most intense stress of my life and it was a prolonged period. Um, it was one thing that really just led into another thing and another thing. Um, and I touched on kind of the basics of it in another episode. But what kind of makes me unlikely to enter a fugue state, but somebody else and you know, in, under the same pressure or less pressure kind of enter one. It's the brain's so fascinating and it just proves that we know so little about how it works. This case study basically advised that cases of dissociative fugue like this medical student suffered generally resolve in days, weeks and 
at a maximum months and recovering is sudden, like snapping back into reality. It also states that, quote, alcohol, hallucinogens, marijuana, head trauma, brain tumours, dementia, hypertension, manic episodes and schizophrenia may cause effects similar to dissociative fugue, which is absolutely true. Um, I had a very close family member suffer from dementia and um, without going into too much detail, the symptoms of a dissociative fugue are incredibly close to um, what they experienced. Um, I've also known people who have suffered from bipolar, in particular extreme manic episodes and um, schizophrenia, and they're all um, present similarly. Similarly, If you compare these case studies, the emotions that the case study participant was feeling immediately beyond set before the onset of the fugue states, he said that he felt uneasy and uncomfortable. And this kind of mirrors exactly how Ryan was described as being upon his return from seeing the holy man with the other Spanish backpacker that he'd met. Um, That happened that day, um, the day before Ryan went missing. And then into the night, his behaviour just kind of went from one extreme to the other, saying he wanted to go home, ringing his parents, saying he'd done all he wanted to do, seen all he wanted to do and he wanted to come home and then seemingly the next minute telling John, no, I want to stay. His behaviour really mirrors this particular case study. Now, if you don't like speculation, I suggest turning off now because I'm going to dive a bit into what I believe happened to Ryan based on everything I've looked at, looking at Um, all the different information and theories put forward from people. I do just want to say straight off the bat, firstly, I get such good vibes off Ryan's photos, um, the photos of prior to his disappearance and early on in his trip. He just looks, he looks cheeky. He looks like he would have been a laugh. He looks like a typical Aussie bloke. Um, I suggest looking up his photos. He's got a cheeky smile, big smile, bright eyes, curly brown hair. And it just, it just makes me sad that, you know, he was feeling so out of sorts suddenly, so far away from home. There are a couple of photos and one's on the Australian Missing Persons Register. And I don't know why that's the one chosen um, for that particular photo. And there's a couple that you can find, I believe, from the background. I think it's from early on in Ryan and John's trip because there's a mosquito net in kind of a really basic room over a bed. And these photos, I was looking at them the other night. And if you compare them to the early photos um, of Ryan um, before his trip or early on in his trip, I noticed that the light had kind of gone out of his eyes and I don't know if that's just me, but then again, I told myself, I know exactly how that feels, especially traveling in a developing country. You're constantly suffering, if you're me, um, or you've got any kind of upset stomach, it's pretty common. Delhi belly is a thing in India um, and it's called Bali belly in Asia or Bangkok belly as I suffered from once terribly. Um, The way that people live and the sanitation and they generally only drink bottled water and things there. If you sleep up and you have a drink with ice that's made just from tap water or anything like that, you accidentally brush your teeth with um, 
water from the tap because it's kind of second nature. That's what you're used to back in Australia. We are so lucky with the tap water we have. That's what happened to me in Cambodia. And then I was out for maybe like five days, sick, diarrhea, gastro symptoms. It was horrendous. And I started to get really, this was when I was teaching in Cambodia. I started to get really paranoid. I was like sweaty all the time um, from kind of stress. My heart was thudding all the time. I started to really like stress out. And that's, and then not long after that, i I decided to take up my working visa in the United Kingdom and I moved there. And I just felt like at the time I was only just turned um, 24 and I felt like I was too young to deal with the reality of living for a long term in Cambodia. I feel like I really piked out on it. Um, it was for the best leaving and going to Malaysia and she does listen to this podcast. I met one of the greatest people I've ever met, my travelling friend Lauren, and I really feel like the things that happen to us, especially when travelling, kind of lead us to where we're supposed to be. But back to the photos, I, Ryan's photos, the light kind of looks like he's gone out of his, his eyes a little bit. He looks tired. He looks, you know, a little bit apathetic. And kind of if I look at my photos, my travelling photos from those areas, and my travel friend Lauren will agree because I met her when we were both fleeing Asia because we were sick of the heat and how our stomachs were affected constantly. We just weren't cut out for it long term. You kind of just get worn down. And if Ryan and John were traveling for two months, it may not seem like a long time. All day, every day, spending time with someone and traveling and having new experiences and speaking to new people, it is so exhausting. So... That was just kind of my two cents. But I mean, I'll put the photos up on the Unknown Passage Instagram and you can check them out or you can just search them. The search for Ryan, for his father, Jock Chambers, really reminds me so much of Carla Valpeo's father, you know, traveling across Peru, even now looking for his missing daughter. They're two fathers that are desperate to find their children lost in completely foreign countries. And it's just crazy how an experience that you don't expect can like lead you down this path and it will change your life forever. Carla's father, from what I know, and I've been lucky enough to have a few chats um, and ho- I'll have him on the podcast soon. Carla's brother, Carlos Jr. Um, Carla's father is still in Peru, basically living there and living off GoFundMe money, looking for Carla Um, And I suggest going to episode one and listening to that. Um, If you haven't already, I am releasing a Spanish language version of that very soon. I do not speak Spanish, but a lovely friend of mine who is from South America is currently recording it for me. So, Um, so yeah, Carlos Valpeos and Jock Chambers are kind of living the same nightmare Carlos in Peru, Jock in India, and I doubt either of them thought that they would spend such an extensive amount of time in these countries that their children were just travelling to, you know, as backpackers. You say goodbye to your parents and you really, when you go on a trip, don't envisage your parents coming to that place and looking for you when you go missing. I can't imagine my parents doing it. 
They travelled, you know, in the early years, both of them extensively. But as you get older, you're less inclined to kind of travel extensively and it really takes it out of you. And I really, you know, commend Jock and Die Chambers and Carlos Velpeos and Carlos Jr. Um, for, for doing this. It's, it's amazing. Now, back to what, you know, speculation. Ryan only seemed to suddenly become weird in Rishikesh from what we can go off from John's accounts, from other people's accounts, from his parents' accounts after his visit to the Sadhu, so the holy man um, with the Spanish backpacker that he'd met at the ashram. I would love to know what the Spanish backpacker had to say about this. I, I can only assume that um, they did track down this backpacker, but I mean, who knows? When you were traveling, people come and go. This was pre-Facebook. He could have just been gone and they'd never know. And you're literally just going off the fact that John said, yeah, there was this Spanish guy and they went to an ashram together and that's all you've got. And this Spanish backpacker could have just, you know, gone on his travels and to this day would not know that he was one of the last people to spend time with Ryan. Ryan had said to John really briefly, even though he didn't get into really what happened, that simply that they became uncomfortable with whatever was happening there and he didn't elaborate and John said he seemed unsettled after the visit there. Now, this brings me in a roundabout way to the Beatles. Um, So on their ill-fated pilgrimage to Rishikesh in 1968, which is well documented. The four Beatles, they'd been going through some ups and downs. Um, I believe their long-term manager had died. They'd been replaced with someone that they didn't click with. And so it made sense to go to India um, and practice transcendental meditation with a Maharishi, so a holy man. Um, This was kind of even though India is still popular, backpackers were back then even going, the backpacker trail wasn't actually Southeast Asia at the time. It was actually, it's really interesting. It was actually the Middle East. It was India, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, pre the war-torn places that they are today. um, They were actually like backpacking paradises and the photos of them back in the day are actually incredible before tourists kind of landed, took it over. And then, you know, obviously all those places have their own sad histories with war and dictatorships. And now we're not able to enjoy um, those landscapes as travellers unless you're insane. Um, So basically the Beatles went for a period of time to Rishikesh and if you look up the photos, they're kind of funny. Like, I mean, I don't think it's funny, but they are four men. I believe um, Paul McCartney took his wife and it was either Ringo or George who took his wife. John left Yoko back in wherever um, and they all went out there to try to practice transcendental meditation, which is called TM, and get along. Um, and then suddenly they, you know, one by one started to drop off. Ringo, who is totally my spirit animal, left after 10 days. Um, (laughs) 
And apparently he took his own baked beans to eat while he was there because he had an upset stomach and he knew Indian food wouldn't agree with it. So I love Ringo. I think he's my favorite Beatle now. Paul McCartney stuck it out for five weeks and John Lennon and George Harrison actually lasted the longest um, two months. Now, apparently they left because, um, according to their accounts, the Maharishi that they were practicing under, and you can see photos of him posing with all of them, he's a very smiley character, he was making sexual advances towards members of the group um, and I think it was John Lennon who said that it became clear that he was um, basically keen to make money off them and that was it, which, I mean, anyone could have told them that. If you listen to my first episode, I play a clip where he openly says that, um, (laughs) yeah, openly says that back when they were there. So um, now a great quote is when they were leaving, apparently the Maharishi asked John Lennon why they were leaving. And John turned around and said to him, quote, if you're so cosmic, you'll know why, unquote. However, other sources say that the Maharishi asked them to leave because of their drug use, um, which I'm actually really inclined not to believe. I think he was just trying to save face. The sexual advances that they say that he was making. I'm not sure who they were about, but he strikes me. I've listened to so many podcasts and watched so many documentaries about different random cults. Um, and it just reminded me of how they all start out where they've got a cult leader and then systematically he starts getting them under his control. And then he starts making sexual advances towards the wives of men, or they end up having like group orgies and things like that. And the men just have to sit there and cop it because they're under, you know, they're well and truly in this cult by this point. Um, and that's kind of what made me think, um, I'm assuming it started out maybe towards the wives that were there. I believe Linda McCartney was there. Um, and then maybe he was trying it on with the Beatles. So I just thought that was interesting to kind of explain why even back then, people were wary of these holy men's motives. So basically I started researching other experiences, um, other travellers' experiences of visiting sadhus and what to expect. Um, I'm using the term babas, sadhus. They're kind of used interchangeably in the articles I see. I'm I'm just going to go with holy men. Um, I believe that you have a different title depending on what level of enlightenment you've reached in Hinduism um, or Buddhism or whatever they're practicing. I personally don't believe that anyone is more enlightened than anyone else um, and don't believe in this kind of stuff. Um, I believe you vibrate on a on better on higher frequencies with you know better when you're experiencing positive emotions as opposed to negative emotions. Um, and you are more likely to attract people into your life with positive motives if you're vibrating positive frequencies. But I don't believe that anyone is more enlightened than someone else. My only experience with this kind of stuff before researching this was watching the show An Idiot Abroad. And it's basically a comedy show where Ricky Gervais sends his Manchester very small-minded friend, Carl Pilkington, who is amazing, um, to different places in the world to basically put him um, in situations that he wouldn't normally feel comfortable in. 
he's hilarious. I love him. Me and one of my closest friends will binge watch him constantly. Um, but basically on one episode of it, he goes to India and it's my favorite episode. Um, Carl does not deal with it well, but at one point he visits this holy man, this supposed holy man. And other than holy smoke shows where my head's at. This was the first thing I thought of when I found Ryan's case about a year ago when I first heard his name. Um, and it's all very strange and Carl thinks it's all very strange. And then they get in the Ganges and he's dunking Carl under the water. And it's all positive because, you know, the, the cameras are on them, but Carl doesn't really understand what's going on. It seems from my research that fake holy men, i.e. ones that are targeting tourists for nefarious reasons, will ask for big money in exchange for supposed blessings. Um, in fact, you can actually find lists online of blacklisted Indians, Indian holy men, which is crazy. The Indian government and the police have really cracked down on it. I focused my research on holy men in Rishikesh and it appears from locals and their statements that the real enlightened ones don't seek tourists out and generally live in isolation um, just beyond, you know, the city limits. These sadhus generally smoke hash. And I found an interesting post from a woman who moved to India and actually lived with one of these gurus in the 1940s. So that's how far back um, this kind of lifestyle. And I didn't even think of people backpacking at that time, especially, you know, during the decade of the Second World War, but apparently people were going to India then. It must have been incredible because it would have been like an untouched, pristine paradise before, you know, it became part of the tourist trail. But essentially she moved to India and she lived with one of these gurus in Rishikesh. And then she doesn't really go into detail, um, but she essentially started to get wigged out by his behavior and she escaped by jumping, by scaling a wall. She didn't even tell him and she bailed. Um, Rishikesh is now sadly a hotspot for fake sadhus because it is titled the yoga capital of the world and they know that tourists are going to be coming through there. It's a really picturesque city and they just know that the potential of ripping tourists off um, is, you know, really high and they can make a fair bit of money. That makes me think, did the Baba or, you know, Sadhu or Holy Man uh, that Ryan visited with the other backpacker, whether he was fake or not, did Ryan smoke hash with him and maybe have a, it had a detrimental effect on him, maybe it was too strong for him? I'm assuming that it is um, based on episodes of Locked Up Abroad. I've watched where people have, you know, ended up being hash dealers, people who have moved there and just crazy experiences on them. Um, and that's why he freaked out and left. He was having kind of a bad trip. Uh, I don't know if they take acid, but I'm assuming they take other hallucinogenics there. Um, did he say something to Ryan that scared him? Did he try something that scared Ryan? Did he try to ask for money that Ryan didn't have? I can only assume that the ashram that he was staying at 
would have recommended this barber for him and the Spanish backpacker to visit as he went to their home. So I just wonder if that particular holy man was tracked down by the family and the police and questioned as to what happened. Then I found this particular TripAdvisor review, just a really short one about a fake holy man in Rishikesh. Um, I think the post was from about 10 years ago. Quote, a man, Baba, in Rishikesh, age 50 plus, rides around on a motorcycle. He claims to be connected to a higher force and appears friendly and helpful. He can do Reiki healing, but he sexually molested me while doing so, putting his hands on my breasts and down my pants. He claims to have spiritual knowledge and carries a notebook with positive comments from clients. He has grey hair and a short beard. Also, his English is good. I hope this helps some people, unquote. So there you go. That's straight from somebody who, you know, was the victim of one of these people. Now, this is where I'm going to kind of wrap up with what I really think happened to Ryan. This is pure speculation. It's just my opinion. I go back and forth every single day, but I feel like this kind of sums up what a lot of people think and what most likely happened to him. So weighing up all the evidence... Um, I believe that Ryan experienced a short-term episode or fugue state brought on by drugs of some kind, either drugs that he'd smoke with other travellers, um, the holy man, the Spanish traveller that he was with. I believe that John would have come out and said if this was the case, John seems like a really good guy and I think him and Ryan were having a bit of time apart. You get like that, you're not fighting, but he went off with this Spanish traveller and um John stuck around at the ashram doing meditation and yoga classes. You need a bit of a breather from some people. I believe that the initial sightings of Ryan, um, where he was given food and water at a temple about a week after his disappearance, I believe this was him. This would have been when he most looked like himself, as opposed to the India Mike posts that kind of describe this super skinny, malnourished, dreadlocked man later on where you can't be sure if it's him. Ryan's parents do believe that this was him. They did ask the employees who will confirm that it was him. This was 10 kilometres from the ashram and this this is kind of sad because it was a week after he disappeared, 10 kilometres from the ashram And if that's the case, you have to believe that Ryan was extremely close to John and his father who were frantically searching for him in those early days. He would have potentially crossed paths with them or passed a missing persons poster of himself. Why wouldn't he have come back if he could? He wouldn't have put his parents through this, I don't believe, if he had control over his faculties. Then again, if India is in fact crawling with tourists who have seemingly gone too deep down the spiritual rabbit hole, you have to believe that all other sightings and this sighting could indeed be someone else and they're experiencing quote-unquote India syndrome. Beyond initial unconfirmed sightings that came in, there haven't been any for years of Ryan. They dropped off really soon after. This makes me think that they they were Ryan um, or that they were other people, that people who were just trying to help confused with him. If Ryan wound up in the Ganges, I believe he could have been either found and laid to rest as a John Doe, like the police believe, or that he never surfaced at all and was just swept down in floods or high tides. I watched some flood videos of the Ganges online. I 
I definitely suggest going if you're into this case and interested going on YouTube um, and just writing in Ganges flood. It's, it's crazy. It was, there were people standing like right, you know, on the banks and it was scaring me that they were going to be just washed away. It was like a, it was like the tsunami footage that you see um, of the tsunami coming through the towns in Thailand and just taking things out. It was crazy. I don't know how people can rule out the fact that this happened to Ryan. You'd be ripped away so quickly and tossed about. I mean, maybe in this kind of short-term psychotic state, he decided to get into the Ganges. The Ganges is kind of the spiritual centre of India. People do everything in it. They burn their bodies in there. They wash in there. They have um, spiritual ceremonies in there. And you know, would he be recognisable if he was ever found, if you were tossed around like crazy and hitting things? I believe that a lot of the bodies that, you know, came out after the tsunami that washed up just weren't identifiable because of the state that they were in. Um, Ryan, you know, could have been quite tan by this point. He could have been, um, you know, starting to decompose at this point and your skin kind of goes a bit of a modelly kind of brown colour maybe he was mistaken for a local and because India is a kind of third world developing country, you know, they don't have the funds or the ability to DNA test these people and do massive call-outs to identify them. They've got a population of 1.3 billion as of 2020 and one person being pulled out of the Ganges just isn't a priority. It's unfortunate but it's it's the way it is. I believe Ryan did initially walk away after a period of drug use that brought on some sort of psychotic short-term psychosis or dissociative fugue state. I believe he did wander and the sighting of him the next week was him. I wish that there was more information on that sighting to go off, things that he said, what was said to him, where he said he was going, anything like that, but there's just nothing. If Jock or Diane or either of Ryan's brothers would like to come on the podcast and discuss it. I'd love to speak to you. After he left that temple, um, I can't say what happened to Ryan, but I can say that the sudden drop-off of sightings is super concerning. Ryan had only been in India for two months. He was still a rookie. You'd be a rookie for years in terms of how India works. It's the polar opposite to where he comes from, which is I believe Mount Gambia in South Australia, which is a small coastal town. It's beautiful. You wouldn't be able to communicate with people. You People wouldn't be open to helping you if you're acting, you know, bizarre or not dressed appropriately. Um, he could have wandered just until he died. Like a lot of these India syndrome case studies. He could have fallen in the Ganges. He could have walked into the wilderness and died in the elements. If you look at pictures of Rishikesh, it's beautiful. The Ganges kind of flows through it. It looks turquoise, which is weird because the Ganges is super filthy, but surprisingly, the water quality since the COVID lockdown, or unsurprisingly, has apparently improved like tenfold, which says a lot about what we're doing to the planet. But in the distance, there's just mountains and jungle and forest and, you know, it just goes on forever and it's a stunning setting, but I don't know how they can rule out that he just didn't wander into that and, you know, go bush. 
Surviving for 15 years seems an impossible thing uh, without coming to your senses or reaching out for help. And I don't believe that a fugue state, if you're 21 when you go missing, I don't believe that you can completely forget who you are for the rest of your life. And for 15 years, you there's no recall, you know. I just, there's no fugue state studies that say that anything beyond months, they've never heard of cases beyond months and I'm inclined to go with the science. Then again, maybe we have it all wrong. And this is when I went the other way. I thought suddenly, did Ryan smoke? Like maybe he walked out that day at five o'clock to go and get a packet of cigarettes early in the morning. Um, there's, you know, convenience stores all over the place in when you're traveling, 7-Elevens. I don't know if Rishikesh has any, but from photos I've seen, they've got convenience stores and all little stalls and things like that. You can pick up cigarettes anywhere. Was he just going for a walk? Was he going to get some cigarettes? He was hardly dressed. That makes you think that he was just ducking out and coming back. But then again, India is really hot. So maybe that's just how he was getting around. Was he going for a walk with the full intention of returning and something happened and we have it all wrong? That means that subsequent sightings weren't him. But maybe the note in his journal, which I'll constantly come back to, wasn't meant to be read by anyone. Maybe it was just poetry he was writing, not on that day, not before his disappearance, but earlier on. Maybe it was just, you know, ramblings and introspective ramblings, so to speak. But however, in my heart of hearts, I do think that that was, that final note was written right before he disappeared. And it does distinctly say, if I'm gone, I'm not dead. I'm freeing minds, but first I have to free my own. And I've looked at that so many times and it must have made sense to Ryan, but, you know, it it doesn't make sense to me. I really don't believe Ryan was under the influence of a cult or a holy man at all. He was, if you believe the sighting, sighted by himself. He left the ashram alone. He turned up a week later alone. I feel like he really was restless and his final note really says a lot about his mental state. Maybe he was freeing his own mind by leaving all his worldly belongings behind, the you know shackles of his former life and going to find himself. And that really ties in with this India syndrome, which I suggest that you look into. So do I believe that Ryan's still alive? Honestly, a huge part of me does. It's it's really strange. I just have this creeping sensation that he's out there. But then in the next breath, I just wonder if he could survive for that long. And, and would he do that? Would he do that to his parents? I can only hope that, as Ryan said in his final communication, that he isn't dead and that he can find a way to free his mind so he can find his way back to his family who loves him and misses him so much. Ryan would be 35 now and his parents regularly post on the Ryan Chambers Facebook page on anniversaries of his disappearance and his birthday. I just wanted to read a post from them from a couple of years ago, which I think really says it all. Quote, Ryan, we think of you every day. Time is such an unfathomable thing. It only feels like yesterday, but so much has happened over the past 11 years. Eternal love, mum and dad, smiley face, kiss, 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 unquote. So what do you think happened to Ryan? 
I really love your feedback. So definitely head to the Unknown Passage podcast Instagram. It's at Unknown Passage Pod and interact with me there on the posts. I really want people's opinions on this. I'd also want to reach out and say that if you use Anchor to stream your podcasts, and that's the app that I use to create my podcasts, there is a feature where you can leave a voicemail on the homepage of a podcast. So if you go to the Unknown Passage podcast homepage on Anchor on your app, there's a little box that says voice message and you can record a voice message and it comes through to me. If you want to leave one with your theories or say something nice, um, I'll delete and not play any that are mean or abusive. Um, Please do that and I'll play it on the next episode. So if you have any further information on the disappearance of Ryan Chambers um, in Rishikesh, India, please contact Jock Chambers. He is the best contact. Um, His number in Australia is 0419-725-818 and his email is jock, J-O-C-K, at ryanchambers.in. Or you can call, and I believe this is the Crime Stoppers line, 1-800-000-634 or you can call 1-800-333-000. Also, show your support. Go to the Ryan Chambers Missing in India Facebook page for updates or just to leave Ryan's family, you know, a few words. They seem lovely. I just got such a good vibe from them. And Ryan's case is in the best possible hands with his family. It makes me really emotional, actually. Of course, again, follow my Instagram or email me at unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com with any connections you have to any of these cases, any case suggestions. I do have a long list of them or any stories that you want to share about your own travels, you know, in terms of travel safety or anything strange that, you know, you think might be of value to the listeners. I actually just want to say I received a really lovely message on Instagram from a childhood friend of Claudia Kershock. Um, it was really good. They've actually got some posts about Claudia, um, from a few years back on their profile, but it was just really nice. They were thanking me for talking about Claudia, um, and just kind of saying, venting their frustrations at the case, like I did on that episode. So thank you so much for reaching out and please go and listen to Claudia's episode, episode four. So thank you again. I hope that you've stuck through this two-parter. I do really want to hear people's theories about what happened. Um, I can't really find many actual theories um, on Reddit or anything like that. People are just like, I don't know, like it's it's like me, I suppose. I just He's just disappeared into thin air and I hope he finds his way home. So next week's episode is going to take place in Japan. It is a female traveler who is missing in Japan. It's relatively recent and I do want to bring exposure to the case for her friends and family. So stay tuned. Um, It should be out later this week or early next week. Enjoy the rest of your week. Try to stay sane in lockdown. Hopefully it will be over soon. Um, and yeah, send me a message on Instagram if you're bored or want to say hi. Okay. Thanks. Bye.